And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. I'll be dedicating uh, this uh, podcast to the returns of the uh, Vanguard, Fidelity, T. Rowe Price, Schwab, TD Ameritrade, all of the mutual fund and ETF portfolios that, uh, uh, that we've been recommending. I'm going to spend some time on that. Uh, I'm also going to answer a handful of your questions. And yes, I am way behind. I, I must apologize. There are, you've got, you have a lot of questions. And unfortunately, I don't have as much time as I wish I had. But before I get into the performance and get into the Q&As, I want to mention an article that I just recently wrote. I should say we, Rich Buck and I. And it's entitled, Four Simple and Effective Ways to Help a Young Person Get a Jump on Retirement. And that is an article at Market Watch, and we have it uh, on our site at paulmerriman.com as well. And one reason I mention that is, one, because if you didn't read it, I, I would love for you to go through some of these strategies. I've talked about them for years, but to many of you, they won't be new. But different ways that, uh, that you might help a young person have more later, probably using money that you're eventually going to give them at some time in the future, but wouldn't it be nice if you could have the advantage of 50 or 60 years of compounding uh, before they get their hands on it. And one of the strategies I talked about in that article is what I've done with each one of my grandchildren. Now, it isn't necessarily what I wish I had done, but it is what I did. And what I did was at the birth of each grandchild, um, I made an investment. I gave them uh, an amount of money. In this particular case, it was 10000 but it could be done with 1000 or $5,000. There's, there's no magic to it. Uh, the only reason there might be a little bit of magic is because uh, the money was then put under a crummy trust. Now, I couldn't do that immediately. In fact, when I wrote the check to a grandchild, it was gone. I had no control over it from that point on. And the newly born grandchild had 30 days to do what they wanted to with it. And in all cases so far, none of them figured out how to spend it. So at the end of the 30 days, the money goes into an account under a crummy trust. And under the terms of the crummy trust, um, C-R-U-M-M-Y. By the way, there's nothing new about a crummy trust. It's an old established way to, to uh, put money aside and keep it out of the hands of the individual that you're giving it to for a particular period of time. In this case, until these newborn children are 65 years old, could be 50, could be 70, you could say under the trust that uh, should the child need it for health reasons, they could cash it out. You could say under the trust um, if the child felt like they wanted to do something wild and crazy, uh, that um, the trustee would have to allow them to take the money out and do something wild and crazy at some point. In my particular case, I'm figuring that my children are going to take care of whatever giving for those kids is necessary uh, during their adult life. What I am trying to do, my wife as well, we're trying to get this money set aside so it could be used for something more than things that might come up early in life. And there are lots of needs early in life, but I want this to be to help make their retirement special. For one thing, I think they could live a heck of a lot longer than I'm likely to. And secondly, I'm not sure that all of the safety nets, whether it be Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, whatever, it's going to be there 
And so this money has been put aside. And I put this money into, by the way, I didn't put it into anything. I, can, I don't have any control once I give this money to the grandchild. The trustee, which let's say would be my, let's say my son, and uh, for my grandson. And so what my son did was put the money under a crummy trust into an annuity. And uh, that annuity then is left to grow tax-deferred until the child is 65, at which point it starts to pay out 5% a year. Now, I mentioned the annuity in the article, and I really do enjoy all the comments I get at the end of an article, sometimes almost none. In this particular case, I got some 58 comments. Well, some of those are my responses to other people. So maybe there were 48 comments. And uh, in this particular case, the comment says, my U.S. insurance agent said there is no such thing as a private annuity that cannot be touched until age 65. Now, the, uh, this annuity that I mentioned actually is a variable annuity. And uh, the variable annuity, under the terms of the crummy trust, cannot be accessed until age 65. Now, I don't know that that qualifies as a private annuity. I, this is a variable annuity that anybody theoretically could buy. Uh, I, the, the trustee, my son, was smart enough to get a no-load variable annuity and get a no-load variable annuity that gives them access to DFA uh, funds, dimensional funds, uh, which will hopefully give the grandchildren uh, uh, access to some great funds for a very long period of time. So you can put it in an annuity. Now, you may hear that you can't do a variable annuity this way, but the variable annuity actually, uh, the beneficiary of income is my grandchildren, but in the end, at the death of that variable annuity, uh, the proceeds go to charities. So there are some things here, at least I've been told by attorneys, uh, can be done to get that money set aside. Now, what's wrong with the variable annuity? Why might I have done it differently today? Well, the problem with the variable annuity is that the money that is distributed will be taxed at the highest marginal tax rate. Uh, and in essence, virtually everything that is paid out will be taxable. Now, how could I have done better for those children? Well, I don't know that I would have been able to keep, in fact, I can guarantee you, I could not have kept their hands off of a Roth IRA but in theory, had I simply put that $10,000 uh, away to fund uh, their early years of their Roth IRAs, uh, it might have funded Roth IRAs for the first 10-plus uh, years. And um, that would have given them then tax-free growth. Uh, and, and I would not have had the control to... Uh, have the proceeds go to a charity at the end of their life. Uh, they could have uh, set it up for their kids to be the recipient. So there were a lot of things I could have done that might have been better in theory, but I wanted to treat all the grandchildren the same. And uh, so that's the way we do it. But there is such a thing as a variable annuity that can be established and kept out of the hands of a child under a trust. Now, they, 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 they go on to say that the other two of the other suggestions I made in the article was to put aside money on a regular basis and then use the proceeds when the children uh, are a... Uh, 
are, uh, are have earned income that they can do a Roth IRA. Uh, and this person who says that my U.S. agent says goes on to say that my idea of funding a Roth IRA for a grandchild, he says, is silly. He says there is a much simpler way. Now, here's where I'm guessing this person may not have been talking to his insurance agent. I'm thinking this person is actually an insurance agent because he goes on to say, set up a family life insurance trust and buy an appropriate amount of death benefit on yourself with the family as beneficiaries of the trust. $1 million minimum, $4 million is customary for parents earning six figures. Uh, you put enough cash monthly into the trust to pay the premiums on the policies. And then he goes on to talk about how this trust works. Now, this is one of my challenges in life is I've always tried to try tried to help the people who didn't have a lot. That was kind of my first focus. In fact, when I started my business back in 1983, my minimum size account that I would help, they had to have $2,000 to invest in order to get me as an investment advisor. Uh, that must not have seemed like a very high-class thing to do if I would only take a $2,000 account. But understand what this fellow was talking about. He's saying that his insurance agent told him, and uh, or he is the insurance agent, whichever it might be, that this is for people who have a lot of money. The ideas I was proposing is for people who would like their kids to end up with millions and millions of dollars, but are going to have to start small. I mention a dollar a day. He says it's silly. I mentioned use a Roth IRA. He said, why would you do that when you can do these things that millionaires use? The problem is, I doubt that a person who has a dollar a day to invest for a grandchild is going to be able to set up a family life insurance trust. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there are insurance companies that will take a dollar a day. Anyway, I have a great joy when I read through these comments. Some people think my ideas are absolutely fruitless, but who knows, maybe once in a while I'll find a taker. My first topic here uh, for Q&A uh, topics uh, I've had this particular question from a lot of readers who are looking for a newsletter that they can trust and that they could use as a, a do-it-yourself investor. Of course, I would like to see, to, to believe, that me offering, in essence, recommendations at Vanguard and Fidelity and T. Rowe Price, etc., at no cost at all would be a good place to go. But I sense that these people probably are enticed by some of the advertisements that you might see from The Motley Fool or Navalier or any number of uh, newsletters that claim to be able to know and be able to see the things that are going to make you filthy rich, and always better to be sooner than later. In this particular case, the question had to do with a newsletter that I had no idea how this newsletter has done. Now, in the old days, I would have the good fortune of being able to go to Mark Hulbert and Mark's Financial Digest actually showed the long-term performance of newsletters. Some of them absolutely horrible, some of them good at times, bad at others, some having pretty good long-term track records. This particular newsletter uh, came out of the uh, Agura organization. I think it's A-G-O-R-A, and they are one of these companies that uh, they have these 
very high-performing newsletters, at least if you read their promotional material. They're very aggressive. And I'm, by the way, what they do is just very normal. This is not like these are some sort of evil outliers. It's the nature of the, the online newsletter uh, business. And they are protected uh, by uh, First Amendment rights. They can basically almost say what they want uh, in the process of trying to sell uh, a subscription. But I did go to Mark and I say, do you know anything about this newsletter? He said, no, I don't. Uh, by the way, Mark has started up his newsletter again, but it isn't tracking hundreds of newsletters because in order for a newsletter to be tracked, Mark charges the newsletter an annual fee. I actually pay Mark $3,000 a year to have him track the performance I'm about to share with you uh, in, uh, in the, next, uh, the next question, if you will. But here's what he was able to do. He said uh, that he could provide me at least the track records of a number of newsletters, of Agura newsletters that he had tracked. For example, the Oxford Club, he tracked them from January 1 of 1995 through uh, January 31 of 2016. So that was a long period of time. And I've seen some of the Oxford promotional pieces very very enticing, makes me want to know, under, learn what they're recommending today. But over that period of time, Mark's tracking of their newsletter, doing exactly what they suggested should be done, by the way. Exactly. He's, Mark's got a set of rules that determine when he buys, when he sells, and he tries to do it at the same time that you could if you were a subscriber. Anyway, 3.95% uh, a year during that uh, same period, uh, the Wilshire return was 9.14% a year. So you made less than half of what you would have had you simply owned uh, an index. Uh, another started in January 1, 2000, went through uh, two, uh, 2016, uh, that letter produced a 5% return, 5.02. In that particular case, uh, the Wilshire return for that same period was 4.1% a year. So actually, the newsletter did slightly better. 5% probably would not have been considered a home run, but it was better than the index. Another newsletter marked tracked from 1991 to 1999, January 1 of 1991 to December 31 of 1999. Believe it or not, while the Wilshire returned 20.6%, the return of this newsletter was a minus 24.8% a year. Uh, not good. Certainly not what was expected expected. And I'm sure if we could see the, the promotional material to sell that newsletter, it would have been something much higher than a negative 24.8% a year. Uh, another newsletter uh, that Mark tracked was from January 1 of 94 to December 31 of 1999. During that period of time, the Wilshire compounded at 21.5%. And uh, the Agura publication compounded at 2.3. I think you're getting the message, aren't you? That um, as wild and crazy and as mouthwatering as the returns can be in the promotional material from newsletter writers, reality can be amazingly different. Now, there are a handful of newsletters out there much like my own, uh, Sound Mind Investing recommends uh, uh, Vanguard Funds. 
uh, and their portfolios have done fine. I noticed that uh, they're not paying Holbert to track their results. I'm sorry that that's the case, but but I I would be willing to bet that their returns are going to be similar to mine because their portfolios aren't all that different. And uh, Money Letter, another newsletter that's not being tracked by Holbert anymore, uh, would also have very similar uh, returns as mine. And when I say similar, probably within 1%. And Dan Wiener's Vanguard Advisory, uh, Independent Advisory Service, uh, that newsletter would also probably be very similar to uh, the other newsletters I've mentioned. Um, Dan Wiener has a very aggressive strategy in terms of promotions. It, it will sound like he knows what funds are going to do well this year and what funds aren't going to do well. I assure you, nobody knows um, what's going to happen. So let me then, now that I've kind of introduced you to Hulbert, and now you know um, what he what he did, I think, starting in 1981, was track newsletters. And when he started his new service, I felt like, he, even though uh, I could create the portfolios and track the returns, that I'd rather pay Hulbert to do it so that... Uh, that I wouldn't have anything to do with it. Nobody could say that I cooked the books. But uh, let me talk about the returns of our portfolios uh, over the, the last uh, uh, one and three years. Now, I'm going back uh, three years uh, because we can see how things look in the really good times and how they look in the, uh, let's say, more mediocre period of time and also to be able to compare uh, these different uh, uh, different families, uh, Vanguard, Fidelity, uh, T. Rowe Price, uh, Schwab, TD Ameritrade. I get a lot of questions, a lot of people asking, which would you recommend? Which is the best of the group? And um, I, will, I will tell you now what I can see has been the best of the group. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I will also have a little comment here about which one is likely to be the best in the future. So let me talk about last year. Uh, we know that uh, last year the uh, S&P 500 was up 21.8%. That includes uh, the reinvestment of the dividends. We also know that last year uh, T-bills made nine-tenths of one percent. Now, what do we know about the relationship between T-bills and the S&P 500? Historically, not counting uh, dividends, that difference, I believe, has been about four percent. And then if you add dividends in, it would probably be closer to six or seven uh, percent. Uh, so this is huge difference, and T-bills have been paying nothing, as you know, for a long time. So historical norms don't seem to mean much anymore, uh, but who knows, maybe eventually they'll get more in line. Now, what are some of the other major uh, asset classes? Well, one is the Wilshire 5000, and that includes smaller companies, obviously, than the S&P 500, uh, but it, and it compounded at uh, uh, 21% uh, a year. EFA, that's uh, Europe, Australia, and Far East, uh, it compounded at 21.8. Now, that does not include a dividend. Uh, for some reason, uh, Mark doesn't track that with the dividend reinvested. Uh, according to Morningstar, that index pays about a 3% dividend, so that would make it about a 24%, a 25% return. And, uh, and, and by the way, EFA is all large cap. Not, it's not small cap. It's going to be more growth than value. And then another index, not really an index, but something 
that you might find of interest is gold. And gold bullion last year was up 11.9. So that's a pretty good year for gold, uh, but not as good as the stock market was. Well, wait a minute. Remember, REITs in the U.S. were up about 4% or 5%. So gold bullion was better than REITs. Um, and small cap value uh, generally didn't make any more than gold. In fact, a lot of small cap value funds made less than gold last year. So let's talk about the, uh, the recommendations that I have on my, on my website. Um, and we have recommendations at, at uh, Vanguard, both for taxable and tax deferred. And there was a difference last year, and I'll explain why. And Fidelity and T. Rowe Price. Now, those are all mutual fund recommendations. But we also have the Vanguard, the Fidelity, the Schwab, and the TD Ameritrade ETF recommendations. And as you may recall, if you've tracked our recommendations, we recommend a, a what we would call an aggressive strategy. That one would be all equities. We do a moderate uh, risk portfolio. That's 60% in equities, 40% in fixed income, and we do a conservative. Uh, asset allocation, which is 40% in equities, 60% in the fixed income. So last year, with stocks being so strong, uh, we would expect the all equities to have the best performance. And in fact, uh, that's what happened across the board. But let me, let me compare now these different organizations talking first just about mutual funds. The Vanguard portfolio, again, these are all tracked by Holbert, 21.5% for the all-equity, aggressive, tax-deferred. Fidelity was 20%. Now, that's a fair difference. That's 1.5% less at Fidelity. The T. Rowe price, 22.5%. And uh, so of the major fund families, uh, let's see, there's T. Rowe price, Fidelity, and Vanguard with mutual funds. The winner was T. Rowe price. Now let's talk about why T. Rowe price might have won. Uh, for one thing, it was a better year for growth than value, a better year for large than small, but more important, if you looked at the number of stocks in the, in, in the T. Rowe Price portfolios, they were a fraction of what you would have gotten at Fidelity or, or Vanguard uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, of the return because you're going to have years, and this is probably more likely going to happen on the upside than the downside, but you're going to have years that by having a few companies, you're going to come out ahead having many times, whatever that amount might be. And by the way, T. Rowe Price, while it's actively managed, uh, is their fees are reasonable. They're not as low as, uh, as the uh, Vanguard uh, funds or the Fidelity funds, but they, uh, but they are still reasonable. Now, when we then look, and by the way, that was for one year. If we look out three years, the return at Vanguard was 9.4. Uh, the return at... Uh, at uh, uh, let's see, this would be Fidelity was 9.2, and the return at T. Rowe Price was 9.7. Now, notice how close they are. I mean, whether we're looking at all equity or, uh, or a combination of equity and fixed income, 
the return differences are not huge. And if we look at the the five-year five results of the Vanguard portfolio, we see 10.8% for the aggressive. Uh, we see 11.11% for fidelity, and we see 11.1% for the T. Rowe price. So, which of these would one recommend? Well, my sense is that uh, probably Vanguard would get my nod. And the reason being is that uh, Vanguard uh, has lower expenses than T. Rowe Price, even though T. Rowe Price had slightly, very slightly higher returns. And, uh, and, and Vanguard was appreciably better uh, than fidelity at the equity level, and uh, a little under Vanguard uh, over the three-year, and a little ahead of Vanguard over the five-year. But I think overall, I would just give the nod uh, to Vanguard over fidelity. But they're going to be very, very close, all three of them. Now, when it comes to ETFs, that's a little different thing, because with the ETFs, if I look at the Vanguard ETF, aggressive, one year, 21.1. Okay, now let's compare that to the mutual fund at Vanguard of 21.5. Now, that four-tenths of 1% is probably actually more than that if you did any buying and selling during the year. And the reason that is going to be true is because even though there's no commission when you trade these ETFs at Vanguard, which you would if you're doing rebalancing, there is still a spread between the bid and ask. It's not going to be great, or normally it's not going to be great. There are conditions under which it could be higher, but normally it's going to be very close, the bid and the ask. So maybe, maybe it might have cost another one-tenth of one percent, but that would make the mutual fund that, that much better as far as, as far as I'm concerned. Now, if we look at the, let's look at the uh, uh, fidelity and the comparison between their mutual fund, and their ETF portfolio, as we recommend, guess what? Turns out the ETF did better than the mutual fund in the case of Fidelity. In the uh, T. Rowe Price does not have ETFs. Uh, and for what it's worth, I should mention that the, the, the ETF at Fidelity for the all equity was 20.7%. Uh, versus 21.1 at uh, Vanguard. And then we have Schwab. Schwab was 20.5. So Schwab was better than Fidelity, worse than, uh, than Vanguard uh, for that single year. On the other hand, as you go out to uh, uh, for three years, uh, the returns were even closer uh, with Vanguard ETF getting 9.8, Fidelity 9.6, Schwab um, 9.2, and uh, TD Ameritrade uh, 9.4. So they're all very close. If you really found huge advantages of doing business at Schwab or at uh, Fidelity or at TD Ameritrade, I am sure they're going to be very similar. Now, having said that, we do know that Vanguard is in the process of bringing out funds that are factor-based. Now, I have for 15-plus years talked, in fact, I guess it's more than 20 years now, uh, talked about the factor-approached uh, portfolios at dimensional funds. That's, that's what made them unique. 
and now that is being more is more commonly done across the industry and uh, Vanguard has just announced that they will be coming out with factor-based uh, funds ETFs uh, in the coming months I think April they'll be out with them can't wait to tell you more about them but uh, that would probably even give me another reason why uh, I might prefer the Vanguard funds uh, over the others. Now let's look at something else here that's different, and that is taxable versus tax deferred. And the only family where I we produce both taxable and tax deferred recommendations are um, uh, are the Vanguard funds. So if you uh, if if you look at the one year return of the 100% equity, taxable, and this includes, by the way, um, some tax-exempt bond funds, which would theoretically have lower returns, but maybe better tax after-tax returns. But for the whole portfolio, the Vanguard taxable strategy was up 22.2% for the year. And by the way, for three years, 9.6, which was 2% better, I'm sorry, two-tenths of 1% better than the tax-deferred portfolio, and 11.2 for five years, which is four-tenths better than the tax-deferred portfolio. Here's why. Basically because the taxable portfolio does not include REITs. REITs are only in the tax-deferred portfolio. And that, of course, as I mentioned earlier, REITs had a very bad year last year, particularly in the U.S., uh, did better in the international markets, but was really hit, hit, uh, hit hard in terms of, I think, 4 or 5% gain versus... Uh, uh, international REITs, I think, were up 15% or so. But that made the difference in a broadly diversified portfolio between 22.2% uh, for the taxable versus 21.5% for the tax deferred. And by the way, I might mention, if you remember, I said that gold in 2017 was up 11.9%, but for the three years uh, ending 12-31-2017, it compounded at uh, only 2.6%. We do not have returns for the entire year uh, under the best in class because we didn't start, I think, until February, March. But if we look at the several configurations of all equity, uh, following the ultimate buy-and-hold strategy, both U.S., international, big and small, etc., cetera, uh, those returns were between 20.5 and 21.2, depending on several different moving parts. But I guess the bottom line would be that they were basically the same uh, as using the uh, either Fidelity, Vanguard, uh, uh, Schwab or TD Ameritrade within that same range. Uh, now, we will, uh, over periods where value does better than growth, which didn't happen last year, and small does better than large, which didn't happen this last year, uh, it will be interesting to see if the best-in-class recommendations do better uh, than the commission-free at Vanguard and Fidelity, and Schwab, and TD Ameritrade. By the way, for those who are interested um, in answer to the question about uh, do you track the annual performance of your recommended buy-and-hold portfolios uh, for the large brokerage houses, that's the way the question was asked, uh, yes, they are tracked, but we don't track them. They are being tracked by Mark Hulbert, and you can go to halbertratings.com if you wish to see those uh, on a regular basis. I don't know how often they're updated because I don't 
track them, but if it's basically once a year, uh, it may be that their uh, prices change daily for all I know, but uh, at least you could go back. In fact, I'll go back after the end of a quarter and uh, see how we're doing. Uh, the next question or topic uh, is uh, regarding the managing the ultimate buy and hold strategy with fewer funds. And the question is simply, is there a way to recreate the ultimate all equity buy and hold portfolio with fewer funds? So we've talked in the past about uh, adding small cap value to target date funds. I think the name of that article is uh, uh, how to double your target date fund performance with one simple step. And, and, and so target date funds, which tend to be basically large cap and more growth oriented, what they're missing a lot of is small cap and value. So by simply adding a small cap value, uh, you are going to uh, pick up a lot of that, uh, of that uh, under-representation. Another way that you could uh, eliminate a lot of the funds is by going U.S. only and picking up, using the large and the small and the blend and the value. Uh, plus, I think if you're inside of a, of a tax-deferred account, you'll want to uh, be using the uh, REITs. But you could eliminate all the international holdings. That would simplify things considerably. It would uh, raise your risk a little bit, and it would probably, at least based on the past, uh, lower your return a little bit, but not much, maybe a quarter of 1%. Also, uh, I think you could, uh, uh, you could put together a portfolio uh, that is uh, not only U.S. only, but it could be also value only. So you could have half of the equity in U.S. large cap value and half in U.S. small cap value. Now that should produce a better rate of return than owning the S&P plus large cap value, small cap blend plus small cap value, and REITs. But if you went strictly with the large cap value and the small cap value, uh, you would get access to markets that are very similar in terms of how they, they'll all go up together. Most cases, they'll go down together. But historically, the value does produce a better return. Now, you could also add two more funds. You could add international large cap value and international small cap value and uh, have basically a global value portfolio that will probably do better in the long run than one that also includes uh, the, the growth in the portfolio. One of these days I'll do a podcast all about the capital gains and dividend distributions of mutual funds. But for today, uh, this question says, uh, brings up the topic of dividends. It says, when a mutual fund pays a dividend, it will lower the share price due to the fund's requirement to pay that dividend. So my question is, can you explain exactly how that makes me money versus not paying the dividend, which would keep the fund price the same. Now, I mean, that's, there is no benefit to having that dividend paid out. It becomes a taxable event, uh, certainly, but that's just the way mutual funds work. The problem is for the person who buys a fund in November, and then the fund pays a dividend in December, you're going to be taxed on that entire dividend, even though you only owned it uh, for a month. Uh, but that, that pass-through of the dividends is uh, part of what you have to live with uh, inside of a mutual fund.
fun. And for my last uh, question, topic of the day, uh, this one has to do with uh, concern not only for the stock market, but for the bond market. He says, I have been very nervous for some time now about the bond market. Stocks, of course, have had an incredible run-up, and bonds are normally a great insurance for someone like me that is near retirement age. I fear, though, that bonds perhaps may be a bit too expensive in a scenario where inflation decides to rear its ugly head I'm concerned there could be a flight out of both stocks and bonds. I've decided I sleep much better keeping just stocks and the stable value fund in my 401k. Then in paren says no bonds. Uh, I do have a significant amount of bonds with Vanguard as per year asset class model, 40-60, bonds, 60% equity. I know that even the stable value fund has some risk, although I would hope they would be minimal in an institution like Bank of America. My feeling is, if and when we get a sell-off in stocks and or bonds, I'll have the dry powder to buy those assets on sale. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this. Well, first of all, I've always considered stable value funds um, basically bond-like, uh, in, a bond-like investment. Uh, stable value funds are guarantees not from the U.S. government, not from the corporations whose bonds the insurance company owns, but rather a guarantee of the insurance company. And of course, there is some risk. It's minimal. Historically, a few have failed, but not many. And, uh, and basically, the returns of a stable value fund, uh, by the way, let's just talk about this stability, the word stable here. Uh, basically, a stable value fund is going to have the same $1 value, let's call it $1, much like a money market fund. But the interest rates uh, over time uh, may vary, uh, much like a money market fund would. Uh, and it is the insurance company that creates the stability. In a money market fund, the reason for the stable price is because all of the instruments are very, very short term. But in a stable value fund, the insurance company could, in theory, uh, own anything uh, and still guarantee that $1 price. Uh, They normally pay, certainly better than a money market fund, and generally even better than a short-term bond fund they will likely have a lower rate of return uh, than an intermediate-term fund. Now, the beauty of them for investors is they don't see any volatility. And so it is feels like a safer place to be. Certainly, short-term and intermediates are going to go down a little bit if interest rates rise. If you're in a long-term bond fund, they could go down a lot. But I always find it interesting that somebody is losing sleep over the value of their bonds, whereas the stocks have exposure, risk exposure, that are probably 10 times the loss on the bonds. And in theory, the loss on the stocks could happen in a few days, whereas the bonds would probably take a long period of time to go down uh, substantially. So... Uh, I'm okay with stable value funds. I'm okay if that's all somebody has in the bond part of their portfolio. I would say, though, if you have stable value funds for all of the fixed income portion, total risk-wise, you could probably pick up a little more equity uh, since you have such phenomenal stability 
in the fixed income part of your portfolio. So I hope some of those comments today, uh, answers and discussions about the returns of our different portfolios uh, have been helpful. Drop me an email, paul at paulmerriman.com if you have any questions uh, about these uh, topics. And uh, my, uh, my hope is that uh, in the coming weeks that we'll be able to talk more, certainly about the new Vanguard ETFs, the factor-based ETFs, uh, as well as talking more about the other portfolios that we have built, both, by the way, directly with funds uh, or, or the brokerage houses of those funds, uh, and the Motif product. In fact, uh, Chris and I will likely have a special, uh, a special podcast that will be dedicated to comparing Motif to another a way to access uh, very inexpensively uh, in, in terms of building these portfolios on your own using best-in-class as opposed to going directly to a, a Vanguard or a Schwab or, or uh, TD Ameritrade or Fidelity. As always, thanks for listening. And I'll be talking with you next week. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.